Hey everybody, Christina Zias here. I'm a body positive fashion blogger, TV style expert, and your host of Lip Stories. On this season of Lip Stories, we are having honest and intimate conversations between some amazing individuals. We're looking back on our favorite beauty moments and getting real about how we can all feel a little bit more beautiful, a lot more powerful, and like our best selves. In Lip Stories, we are looking at beauty from all different angles and discussing how being confident in yourself is a journey and it's different for every person. Thank you so much to Sephora Collection for bringing us this podcast. If you haven't already checked out the Lip Stories lipstick line, what are you waiting for? If I could recommend any color, I would recommend number 66. It's called Offshore and it's the most beautiful pinky red. In today's episode, I'm talking to Kimberly Drew. Kimberly is an art curator, writer, social activist, and formerly the social media manager for The Met. She is also co-authoring the book Black Futures. Kimberly is super cool, super fun, super stylish, and a native New Jerseyan like myself. She often discusses the importance of diversity in the art world. I'm so excited to get into our conversation, so let's do it. Today we are with Kimberly Drew. She's an art curator, a writer, a social activist. She had this Tumblr account, and you still do, Black mm-hmm. Contemporary Art, which you launched in 2011. And you are a Jersey girl like myself. I feel like I'm in such good company. Welcome. So excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm really so happy to be here. Okay, so growing up in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. you're so close to the city. Mm -hmm. Did that change your relationship with art? Did you grow up with art at home or visiting museums? Did you go to the Met to the MoMA or no? Yeah, totally. Um, What's interesting about New Jersey especially, and where I grew up in New Jersey because I'm North Jersey, Mm -hmm. um, I grew up 15 minutes outside of Newark, New Jersey, which was very much the home for the black arts movement in the 1970s. And so there's always been an art scene that's really local. And so growing up, my aunt, who's an artist, in her office, there was this poster for a gallery called Al Jari Gallery. And it was so interesting growing up and then learning actually what it was but it was just one of those things that was always there and it was just like this poster that I loved and then I began to understand better like okay this is a really important gallery especially for supporting the work of artists that I'm really passionate about Um, but it is very funny growing up in proximity to a city because it doesn't feel like you have to journey towards the things that you're looking for they're very much in front of you and when I was growing up we always went to museums and it's interesting that it took me so much of my college career to really learn that I wanted to work in the arts because it was always there but I just there was a catalyst that happened about halfway through college where I realized that it could be a professional path yeah that's so cool because you know I grew up in New Jersey too and I was thinking about this earlier and I was so fortunate that in my school we went to Broadway we went had Mm -hmm. school trips to the Met and to the MoMA Mm -hmm. and I loved learning about art but in school every anytime I studied art it was like actually like physically making art like Mm -hmm. doing a ceramics Mm -hmm. class I never learned about art history or the importance of art it was just like something cool that you could do as a hobby yeah I mean that's the thing that's so strange about the American educational system and maybe it happens more globally as well mm -hmm. but we're always taught art as a lay activity it's never about the professionalization of art we take math we take history all these things that are oriented towards a professional career but when it comes to art it's just crayons If you get arts programming. Right. That's so wild. If you get it, too. Yeah. So what happened? You went to college, and when did you decide, like, okay, this is for me. I want to 
take this seriously as a profession? Was there a singular moment that you're like, wow, I love art. I need to do this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting. When I got to Smith College, which is where I went, um, I started actually as a math major. Okay, completely different. What? It's funny because I can barely count now. Um, (laughs) But I started as a math major. I was pre-med. I, you know, growing up as a black American, growing up in a low-income family, you kind of are taught that you have to go to school in order to, like, make more money when you leave. And so I was doing all of these professional careers. I bounced from pre-med to engineering thinking, okay, I have to be making six figures when I graduate to justify this huge expense and all these loans and all these things. Mm-hmm. But during that time, I was always taking classes in African-American studies. I loved being there. I completed the major in two years because I just kept taking Snaps classes. for you, girl. <laughs> I know. Like, That's I was impressive. a sophomore in the senior seminar. Like, It was so silly. That's awesome, though. Um, and th- after that sophomore year, I had an amazing advisor named Kevin Kwashi who is like, a celebrity at Smith and now teaches at Brown and it's a real loss for the Smith community. Um, But he suggested to me that I do an internship at an organization called the Studio Museum in Harlem. Um, He suggested both the Studio Museum and the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York because he's like, you're so passionate about black art and culture, you need to, you know, see what this is about. And because the Studio Museum had a paid internship, I applied and got in. Um, I spent 10 weeks there and on the first day I learned about so many artists and so many things that I just... I don't know where else I would have found it. Um, And of course, I grew up in an art-oriented family, but learning actual names of artists, learning actual histories, really being able to better understand what was going on, everything clicked. It was like, this is the way that my brain learns. These are the things that are exciting to me. I'd been working so hard to keep like a good grade point average in all these science classes, but I wasn't passionate about it. And I found something that really felt like home. That's so interesting. And I love that you said that, like, you were actually so immersed in it, and that's how you learned. Because mm-hmm. for me, in full transparency, like, I've always appreciated art, but I'm not someone who, like, really understood it. And my main experience with art was I did a semester abroad in Florence, Italy. Amazing. And I remember, like, going to the Uffizi or, like, and learning about the David and seeing that firsthand. But it was, like, very specific to Renaissance art. And I feel like art is very specific in like the way you learn about it. It's almost like through time periods Mm -hmm. or genres. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel like for you, like with a focus on black art in particular, how do you like immerse that into everyone's studies so they can be more educated if they're just learning just a, a little bit about art in one singular course? What is so interesting and difficult about studying art and learning about art is very much the way that it's taught to us in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, like we were saying earlier, you're taught art through practice and almost like a lay activity and not really as something oriented to, towards something that like will fulfill you for the rest of your life or even within the context of history all the time. And I think for many young people especially, it's really important to have that direct connection with art, to go to the galleries, to see paintings, to see sculpture, to see performance art, because there is such an abundance of art. And I think that that abundance is intimidating to people. And when you can present people with actual things, it helps break down those barriers because we have so many self-imposed barriers around art. And of course, on the other side, I think institutions need to do a better job to welcome people in. But there is this kind of friction that happens with art that doesn't happen with other creative mediums, where if a person plays a song, you can say, oh, I don't like this song or I do like this song. If someone feeds you a plate of food, you can say, I like this food or I don't like this food. That same conversation just doesn't happen with art. And I don't know why, but it's something I've always been really intrigued by. I think it's because people don't necessarily understand it or understand, like, don't find the value in it because they're not educated on it. Mm -hmm. Like, I know for me, so when I was in Florence, I saw Botticelli's Mm -hmm. Venus, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm a curvy woman. And to see 
a little glimpse of myself in that painting because I was like, oh, wow, like, this is such a beautiful painting, such a beautiful woman. Like, I almost felt represented in that moment where, Mm -hmm. like, okay, I don't have to be, like, stick skinny because this painting is valued as, like, one of the most beautiful works of art in the world. Mm -hmm. So she's so beautiful where, in return, that makes me feel beautiful. Have you found a piece of art where you found yourself in it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was the thing that got me on this whole path where I learned about Trenton Doyle Hancock's work. And he's this artist. I think he's from Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. And his drawings and paintings are so weird. And he's this black artist. And, you know, I hate the word unapologetic, but he is very unapologetic in his practice and exploring fantasy and sci-fi. And I just didn't think that that type of art existed or looking at the work of Carrie Mae Weems or looking at the work of Lorna Simpson, black women photographers who are imaging themselves. Um, there is a light that goes off. I mean, I think that example that you gave is perfectly so so right for so many of us where when you go into a space and you see something, whether it's, you know, you like, you know, the aesthetic qualities of what you see and you're drawn to it, like someone like Barbara Kruger, for example, who's an artist um, who actually is from New Jersey. Um, but is considered an L.A. artist because the amount of time that she spent in L.A. Uh Um, But her very text-heavy works, like, are what Supreme stole and made the box logo from. Okay, see. Right? But but if you know the Supreme logo and then you go into the gallery, you see Barbara's work, you're like, oh, there's something here that I already see that I understand or I feel a little bit closer to. And that romance is something that I want everyone to take part in um and unfortunately it's not always on the offer for everyone but it there's just it's just such a delicious moment in time when you just sit and you're like i'm here right especially because when you can like see yourself in that moment it just helps you understand everything and it gives you a greater appreciation for yourself Mm -hmm. and the people around you as well Mm -hmm. and i kind of feel like beauty is like that so obviously you're working to make the art world more inclusive Mm -hmm. and I feel like beauty and the beauty industry is really working hard to make themselves more inclusive as well do you feel Mm -hmm. like there's a parallel between the two absolutely and I think even more especially in the age of Instagram you're seeing so many more artists who are utilizing beauty products Um, Mm -hmm. there's an account that I really love I think her name is Yui and she makes these like incredible drawings on her face and the fusion of those two worlds is like yes that we're both kind of running headstrong or moving headstrong into this moment of like the way that things are done are no longer tolerable. Like that's just the truth of this moment where people are like enough is enough. We're done. We want better products. We want things that are made for us. We want things to be oriented in a different way. We want things to be incepted in a different way or we're not buying it literally. Yeah. Like your money talks these days and you have the power to do that. Right. Do you feel like is there a certain brand or a certain like beauty item that you grew up with and you learned about it that it's evolved over time in your vision of beauty through that product? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I can't say that there's a particular product. I was raised by my mother who always said, beautiful women don't need makeup, which is so funny because now we wear makeup. <laughs> I'm like, okay, there's just and does that she happen. wear makeup too? Oh yeah, no, yeah. she loves it now. Yeah. I started wearing makeup and like any mother, she was like, oh, my daughter's doing it. And so I'm going to do it, too. And then, you know, before Our you know it. Our should hang out together. Yeah. It's the same she sort of thing. She steals my mascara. Oh she my steals gosh. my lipsticks. Yes. Um, she, like, hated dreadlocks when I got them. Now she has dreadlocks. Oh, it's that's just, so funny. That's our pattern. Yeah, you're influencing her, girl. Yes, influencing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I would say I was always, I was always drawn to 
to beauty in general, but it was never something that I grew up with and really got, I mean, I definitely got to observe it change over time. I was a kid who like religiously read Teen Vogue, religiously read Seventeen, and Teen Vogue especially, seeing the way that it's changed under Elaine's tenure and now under Lindsay's Lindsay's tenure. Like, oh my God, I wish I could be a teen again, just to like, just for like 15 minutes to see what it feels like. And then I'd love to be an adult again, but it, it is such a thrilling time. That's so exciting. Was there a moment in time where you were reading an article like in Teen Vogue that really resonated with you? Or did you feel underrepresented? Then or now. Excuse me? Then or now. Then. No, absolutely not. I mean, those magazines, especially Seventeen, as a young person taught me how to hate myself. You know, they, oh, it gave me the me tools. So but you to know, you yeah. know, where you're like, I don't see myself here. <laughs> I I see my aspirational self because I think for so many young people, there is a version of ourselves that we wish we could be mm-hmm. taller, smarter, whatever, thinner. Um, and those magazines really gave me the ammunition to um, weaponize against myself with my subconscious. How do you think that those magazines really affected your overall relationship to beauty I mean obviously you said that it didn't necessarily create a great relationship yeah but do you think that helped you internalize or appreciate what you had from within and maybe create a conversation that beauty is more from within than necessarily just your exterior I wouldn't say it's necessarily within I would say it took a lot of healing to be able to repurpose some of those images because I think, and this is why I love an artist like Marilyn Minter. I'm just going to name drop artists. No, I appreciate Anyone that. who's listening, take the time to Google them. Um, yeah, I hope you guys are like seriously <laughs> taking notes on every single one. We're going to need like a little, yeah. we'll put a line on, sheet. On. I love a line sheet after yes, a podcast. Yes, absolutely. Um, but Marilyn's work is really incredible because she is an artist who looks at beauty and looks at almost like the perversion of beauty in some ways. And um, viewing her work and, and, and growing as an adult and getting into therapy and all these things, I realized that while those magazines fed me images to hate myself, those images also fed who I wanted to be as an adult. You know, like you see a smoky eye for the first time, you see a cat eye for the first time, or you know, like you really want to have a glossy lip. Those things are there too. Right. Be- beyond the ways in which like some of the people or the models are you know, having these effects on you and your subconscious, there is something there that I, I very much like dress for. <laughs> I dress like a 17 girl <laughs> circa 2000. Um, and girl, it, me too. I mean, I think we all are <laughs> yeah. and like reclaiming it. Right. And that yeah. I don't have to modify my body to be, you know, in conversation with that beauty, to be utilizing some of those tools of beauty um, that I can myself be an example for what that beauty looks like on a different body. Well, I absolutely love that because I do think that beauty is so unique and it it is a great way of expressing yourself. Mm -hmm. And I know you mentioned that smoky eye or that cat eye. Mm -hmm. You know, I think growing up, you were before like the time of YouTube, right, where everyone Mm -hmm. was learning from tutorials. So Mm -hmm. you would see these magazine articles and see a beauty look and try to emulate it. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a look that you try that you failed oh I've I've tried to do a cat eye for half of my life and I every time I'm like okay this side is lopsided that side is lopsided I want to like put tape I want to try it out but I feel like it's like you know what kind of day I'm having based on where the wings are at oh my gosh (laughs) so I mean like my wings are completely lopsided right now too I was like whatever Kimberly's gonna have to deal with it but no one can see it but you you (laughs) know it's like one of those like quiet failures where you're just like damn girl you're a mess All right, we gotta keep it pushing (laughs) so funny what was the first item since I guess you taught your mom more about beauty that you introduced to her eyeshadow Really? She loves eyeshadow. It's so funny. Um, and Is there she, a particular color? Or she, she loves purple. 
And so she'll do like a lavender eye and it's gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. And she'll do like thick eyelash, like mascara moment. Your mom seems fabulous. Oh, she's so fat. Like she's the love of my life. (laughs) And when she comes to hang out with me, she always just like pumps up in a look. And I'm just like, I see you, girl. I see you getting dressed and ready to hang out. She's got to keep up with her hip daughter. (laughs) That is so funny. In return, was there an item that she introduced to you that you loved? Are you for sure the educator in this relationship? Definitely lipstick. So so though my mom wasn't doing a full beat during my childhood, there was always a lip. Like okay. a hoop earring and a lip. There, I have very vivid memories of like being on my way to school, maybe five minutes late, my mom realizing halfway to school that she does not have her hoop earrings, turning the car around. So Jersey. So, so Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. Turning the car around, going home, putting on the hoops, and then taking me to school. And at that time... My school was so rigid that if you were late, you had to apologize to the entire student body. What? Yes. And so I would be like stepping out into the morning assembly and apologizing to the community for being late. On behalf of your mom's hoops? On behalf hoops. of my mom in these hoops. That is so funny. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But she looked fabulous. But she looked great. And you know what? Looking back, no regrets. Hoops are such a Jersey thing. I love that so much. Yeah. And I think that, like, where you come from really identifies kind of, like, how you grew up and the way you look. Like, I know I always joke around about the lip liner I wear. I'm like, oh, I cannot wear lipstick without a lip liner. It's because I'm from Jersey. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like that with anything else that you wear or that you do? Gloss. 100%. Like, I love a lip gloss. Um, and I think that that's the most Jersey stuff. Because we never gave it up. We never gave, like, the big plump. And now it's back again. Yeah. But there was welcome. a period. We kept it going. Right. There was a period when it was very much not. And, like, Kardashians can push, like, matte lip if you want to. But we're going full gloss. That is so, so accurate, actually. Yeah. So funny. And a brow. And a good brow. We love a brow. For me, it was, like, a... I have curly hair, so it was like mm. a serious crunch going mm. on with those curls. Mm. That was like a big beauty look circa early 2000s for me. Mm. Obviously, the beauty industry is becoming more inclusive. What do you think that we could all do, that you could do, that I could do to create a more inclusive world for, for beauty? I think it's about telling the story of the journey. Mm-hmm. I love beauty, especially now, because... As I have so many friends in my life who are of so many different identities, I think about beauty and fashion as this entry point into the version of yourself that you want to be. And I think oftentimes my frustration, especially with Instagram era, YouTube era makeup folks, is that it's about the finished product so much or you see people doing like perfect looks on themselves. And I think that the thing that could be so useful to folks is like showing the journey, showing the experimentation, showing that, you know, like your cat eye isn't perfect every time and that's okay. You know, like perfect wings do not make you a perfect woman. Um, It's the journey and the precision and this continued pursuit of the best version of yourself, which I feel like is like the most universal feeling that we all go through no matter where we land on the spectrum of identity. Yeah, I actually really like that. Do you think that there needs to be some a way to evolve the way we talk about beauty or like the words that we use? Like, for instance, like you all use like, oh, she's cute or she's beautiful or that look is stunning. Mm. Do you think those are okay, Or like, is there a way to make those more inclusive? And like, what do those words mean to you? I I love those words. Mm -hmm. I love I love (laughs) the language of beauty. Um, Sickening. Like, I love all of those those words. Oh, wait, hold on. Hold (laughs) up. What is a sickening look? Oh, we need a full (laughs) description because you just dropped that one. Sickening is Miss Fame, who's like, I think, one of the most beautiful drag queens of this moment. And I will say that I don't think it's so much 
about the language changing, I think someone else might say differently. Mm-hmm. But I think that the thing is about making sure that that language is applied to different bodies. I like that. Because sometimes people are denied beauty, especially like you think about dark-skinned black women. There isn't an opportunity to be called stunning or beautiful or cute or soft. Um, and so how can we make sure that we're giving more examples of, of how robust those words can be? Right. Because I think that tone policing or word policing in that way is also like a very uh, misogynistic thing, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, you know, even the word like or, you know, like uh, cute or all these things that are associated with femininity and therefore devalued. And actually, there's a lot of power and robustness in what that word can mean and the connection that can happen when you call someone cute and they like to be called cute mm-hmm. and they warm up to you. And like, how many, can we have hundreds of versions of what cute is um, to make cute stand? I think that's so important because you're right. Like Those words don't necessarily need to be taken away, but there needs to be a greater meaning to them. Mm-hmm. So I know you said that growing up, you weren't really immersed into beauty your Mm -hmm. mom always was like nah you don't necessarily need that Mm -hmm. obviously that has changed now but when do you feel like your most beautiful self is it like when you're at the Met Gala or is it at (laughs) home on a Sunday in your sweats and you're like damn my skin looks good or is it both yeah I was gonna say it's all um yeah I think that there's sometimes when like if I get like a full glam down with lashes and the whole night I'm like bitch <laughs> like you fan girl yes sickening <laughs> um and I would say when I'm dancing I like to go out um like last night I went roller skating and I mm-hmm. felt so beautiful even though I was almost falling half of the time um and then yeah there's those Sundays or you know I, I travel a lot for work now and whenever I get to a new hotel I like put on a robe and I'm like bitch you are sickening you know yeah um but I try to find those moments of of just appreciating and thanking my body for all that I put it through whenever I can. Can you give any advice to others on how they can discover their own version of beauty? Uh, I would say that it can be, it doesn't have to be big, mm-hmm. as big as we think it is. It doesn't have to be like sitting in front of the mirror, looking at every single thing and loving every single thing because those days are just not going to always happen. Mm-hmm. Um, there are pimple days. There are, you know, y- you get a sty. Like, those things just happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if there's always something that you can look at and just think it, you know, like, it's very sunny, summertime. My lips get freckles in the summer, which is a new thing. That's kind of I cute. love my freckles. Yeah. I'm like, this This shit is cute. And I it's like un- unique to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's if it's one little thing that you can see that you're like, oh, this cheekbone, just one cheekbone, maybe not both. Maybe one cheek has a pimple on it. Mm-hmm. Fuck that other cheekbone. This cheekbone is looking I love it. good. Yes. <laughs> so high, yeah. so yeah, so defined. That's so funny. I totally agree with that. Yeah. If you can kind of like wave mm-hmm. a magic wand over someone, right, and and help them feel like their best selves, or even mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. if you if you felt like your best self, is there a word to describe that? feeling for you is like oh I feel beautiful I feel powerful I feel badass Mm. is there a certain word or wait is it sickening I mean it could be (laughs) sickening sickening is a catch-all um I would say I don't know if there's a word that works for everyone so I'll say for myself um I would say present um because a lot of my body struggles and beauty struggles have led me to so much dissociation. Mm -hmm. And so to have a wand that reminds me that I'm right here, I think is good. I like that. 
Hey there, I hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation as much as I have. I just want to take a quick moment to thank Sephora Collection for helping us bring this new season of Lip Stories to life. You'll notice we've tweaked some things on the show from season one, but you can still expect heartfelt, inspiring, and honest conversations with some amazing individuals. At its core, Lip Stories is all about sharing those special, intimate, and beautiful moments that help shape our identity. Lip Stories is a podcast where we go beyond lip service and explore the good, the awkward, and the memorable moments that stay with us all. And what better topic than beauty to explore all of that with? So be sure to hit that subscribe button for Lip Stories and tell all of your friends. Another thing you should definitely tell your friends about is Lip Stories, the lipsticks from Sephora collection. Lip Stories, the collection of lipsticks, celebrates your individual journey, and each shade is named and inspired by some amazing travels and stories from pretty inspiring people. You're going to love the colors. There's bright hues, there's dark hues, there's all these different colorful tones and shades, and you could check them all out online at Sephora.com. And when you find your perfect shade, hit me up on Instagram. I'm at Miss Zias, which is M-I-S-S-Z-I-A-S. Okay, now let's get back to our conversation. You're the social media manager at the Met. Mm-hmm. First of all, what a cool job. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I'm like, that's so fun. And I remember like, well, this is going to be embarrassing, but like I used to be obsessed with Gossip Girl. So like mm-hmm. they'd be on the steps of the Met every single day and mm-hmm. I'd grow up going there. Did you ever work the Met Gala? You did. I did. Okay. Three times. I'm going to need to know a little, like every single thing about the Met Gala, <laughs> please, because the Met Gala is all about fashion and beauty, and it's becoming way more inclusive, and it's becoming such an, an important way that I think that we see experimentation in beauty. Mm-hmm. What was your role in representing the Met Gala? Yeah. I worked the Met Gala for three years, and it was the wildest night of my career every time it happened. Um, I love a theme. Mm -hmm. I think that's also very Jersey of me. And Mm -hmm. so every year I would dress to theme, (laughs) even though I was working. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to look up these these looks. (laughs) They're good looks. My first year I wore chromat. Okay. um, For Manasix Machina, Mm -hmm. and then uh, my second year I wore comb for the Ray Kawakubo, and then the third year for Heavenly Bodies I wore Oscar De La Renta. Okay, were you? Working the Met, or were you like starring at the I Met? I was working because it, it sounds at the like Met. you could have been starring there too. <laughs> um, and my last year, I actually really like finally got it together, and I had my friend Bob Scott, who is one of my go-to beauty like saviors. Really, mm-hmm. like they are so talented, and they always make me look like the very best version of myself. And um, I, they were sweet enough to come up to the Met and beat this face and I just looking back at the pictures of that last night because I was as confident as I ever had been because it was my third time doing it Mm -hmm. um I just am glowing um but in terms of like the nitty-gritty of it it's so not glamorous like anyone who works at Vogue anyone who works at the Met that night is an arduous night um you can look as cute as you want to but you're on the carpet from like five until nine and um but there is a moment of being able to see all of your favorite celebrities Uh, walking across the carpet and it's really fun because it's not like the Oscars or the Grammys or any other event where so many celebrities are there because they're not competing for anything and so there's this very almost like cookout kind of energy that happens where people just like come and hug each other and it's yeah like so low stress and you see that from the images afterwards after my first one I had this moment I was meditating and I thought to myself like wow I looked at Beyonce tonight Beyonce was as 
far away as you are to me, like a few feet. And it's like, yeah, like, hey, girl. And there would be no other time where you'd be that close to your most favorite celebrity. Or like I was working and um, Tracy Ellis Ross came and gave me a hug because we're friends. I was just like, oh, right. Like I'm a human here, too. And I, I really loved working the Met Gala and being able to see up close the like incredible way in which people ordain themselves on that evening because there really isn't a comparison. No, there really isn't. It's one of my favorite nights of the year. It's definitely my favorite red carpet to watch. Mm-hmm. So for you as the social media manager of the Met, mm-hmm. what was important to you to focus on and to cover? And did you think about like different beauty and diversity in those moments as well? Yeah, I thought about beauty and diversity every day mm-hmm. while I was there. Um, the thing that's great about the Metropolitan Museum is that it has an encyclopedic collection and covers 5,000 years of art. And, Wild. Right. And so I always thought to myself, okay, there is something here for everyone. Mm-hmm. There can be something here for everyone. And it's my duty as a social manager to make sure that I'm sharing as wide of a scope of the collection as I possibly can. Um, where you have an institution like the Louvre, which is also encyclopedic, but they very much have the Mona Lisa at the center. Um, sure. And that's the thing that people make pilgrimage to go see. The Met doesn't really have a Mona Lisa. Like there's the Temple of Dender that a lot of people come to see, but for the most part, there's gems all over. And so how can I guide people's experiences? How can I have... Um, and make it so that people remain curious and confident as they move through the galleries. Um, Because I found, especially taking friends through or taking my mom through, when my mom would see a painting of Jesus, my mom is very religious. Mm -hmm. Um, When my mom see a painting of Jesus, she's like, I know him. Mm-hmm. You know, in that moment of, of course, it's intimidating to go into this building that's three blocks long. Um, but being able to see, you know, like you were saying with the Venus, where you see yourself reflected or see something that you know or see something you have value in reflected back on you in the walls. Um, I wanted to do that on social in any way that I could. Was there a single moment that you felt like you saw a reaction from things that you were posting that people were responding to where you're like, okay, this is working. People are understanding what we're doing here. We're making a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing that's great about being a social manager is that you get so many of those opportunities Mm -hmm. because it is one of the most quantitative jobs you can do in any industry because it is by the numbers, right? Right. Um, And so you get the comments back, you get the likes back. Um, I think for me, and not necessarily in terms of like huge impressions or anything, but one of the initiatives that I I started while I was there was doing multilingual tours on Facebook Live. And so I had American Sign Language tours with our incredible interpreters. I had a Korean language tour. I had a Spanish language tour, um, trying to decentralize the ways in which, especially American museums, center the English language. What does it mean when we have a truly global audience? What does it mean when we speak their language to them? Um, And seeing people respond and watching that wake happen across other institutions. Because the thing is, when you're a curator, more often than not, you speak one to three languages. And so what does it mean to invite them to speak in those other languages that they speak? That's so interesting. And especially, I mean, with social media, you do reach such a global audience Mm -hmm. that there's so much opportunity to, like, really make a difference Mm -hmm. and make art so inclusive and make beauty so inclusive. What do you think is, like, the the next step that you want to take to encourage that conversation? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say the thing that, for me, I'm most passionate about right now is inspiring young people to get involved in art. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a goal of mine for probably the last five to six years, really concretely. But I realize in my time at different institutions that I was reaching a level of loneliness that I just got tired of. I was tired of being the only black woman in rooms. I was tired of being in rooms where everybody was able-bodied. I was tired of being in rooms where, you know, I could count the diamond rings on people's fingers um, and felt like I was in the middle of like some weird class like thing. Um, and I I know that what I do and the way that I move for reasons I cannot understand inspire other people to get involved in their communities. And so I've been really committed to especially reaching young people to make sure that they have that um, someone in their life that's instigating their curiosity in art because I want to see more of them in those rooms. Um, Those rooms need them. Those rooms right now maybe don't deserve them, but I want to help to level the playing field so that people who are passionate know that it's an option for them. How young is too young or is there never an Never too young. Yeah, you're never too young. Never too young. Never too old. Um, That's a thing that I love so much about creativity. It's, It's so democratic if we make it so. Um, but it's our individual responsibility, all of us. Like, it's your responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility um, to share the things that we really love and we're pleased by um, with others because it can really, truly, and I know this sounds so optimistic, but there are real changes that happen to your life and, and for the better. Um, and I think in community, being immersed in those things, there can be um, maybe a greater potential for how we live. Do you think that there's like one single thing that, let's say, I could be doing mm-hmm. every single day to inspire young people to be more curious about art or to be, you know, more curious about being more inclusive? That's I would one s- thing I could do. Yeah. I want to make a change for myself. So <laughs> I want a specific. Yeah. I would say um, don't be stingy with the things that you love. Um, we all have, you know, our favorite beauty influencers, to our favorite artists, to, you know, this shop that we found on this Instagram page, sharing those things and stories are on your page can have so many ricochet effects for folks, you know, people, and we all end up down the K-holes of, of Instagram at like two in the morning, you're scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Um, but I think that those things can help people to better uh, trust themselves. Um, cause I think because, and I, I blame institutions, I blame our institutions for this full stop, but I think that there's something that happened where people lost confidence around saying what they like, especially in relationship to art. And so I think all of us can say like, this is what I like. Um, and that can help a larger chorus of people being really pronounced about the things that they enjoy. And if you're fortunate enough, because I think it is a gift to have younger people following you, uh, I think that them seeing that can be really helpful. I think that's so important that you said that, because especially in today's society, and there is so much of a cancel culture that people Mm -hmm. are so scared to speak Mm -hmm. and to say what they like. Mm -hmm. But I can be like, no, I like this restaurant. This mm-hmm. is why mm-hmm. I like this beauty product. This is why I don't like this. And you shouldn't be afraid to silence your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I think that does make everyone a little bit more positive, a little bit more confident in themselves. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips for young women, like three tips to be more confident? Yeah, um, I would say research first. Mm-hmm. Um, educate be, yourself. Educate yourself. Because if you're putting out this brand that you really love and it turns out that they're like skinning cats in Indonesia, like you should know what they're up to. You should be aware, girl. Be aware. Yeah. Be aware. First and foremost, that'll make you real confident because yeah. you know your shit. Right. Second, I would say build an immediate network of people mm-hmm. if you can. I was not a kid with friends. 
I'll say that first and foremost. I was a, I was a kid who had like two friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and now I'm at a point in my life where I have like 10 best friends. You're like, no more new friends. No more. <laughs> well, not even new friends, but just like if you can, you know, if, if it's within your social register to build a network of people to support you IRL. Mm-hmm. That's my confidence engine 100%. Like I could text of a group chat right now. I have individual friends right now that if I need a little boost, I know that they've got my back um, because I think social media is is great. It's mm-hmm. an incredible tool. I'm a big advocate for it. But at the same time, to have that IRL grounding um, of people who really care about you and have your best interest at heart um, is really incredible, especially because we are in a moment of cancel culture. And so who are the people who will call you in? You know, on the other side of that, the people who will call you in and correct you and, right. and help you um, lead you to a better version of yourself. And then the last thing I would say um, is to celebrate yourself. I love celebrating myself. I have like this system of soft goals where it's like the littlest things. Like I got myself a bottle of jasmine water because I want to like spray my bed with jasmine water every night before bed. Don't judge me. I love that. Um, but when I got the bottle, I was like, you did that. You yeah. know, and it's like the simplest thing. And of course, it's like this capitalist exchange. But I was like, it's mine. And I knew I wanted this for myself. And I did a little dance. <laughs> Good for you. How do you think that we can help other people feel more beautiful, and more confident? Like, I think those were great tips. Mm-hmm. But is it something about like, you know, you walking in or seeing someone who walks into a room and giving them a compliment or like, what are things that we could do to help each other every single day? Yeah, I would say more so than what you're giving. Um, it's about what you're receiving as well. Uh, I think listening better is a great way because there's a lot of people, especially women, who feel silenced. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean to give people the floor more to speak? Um, conversational pacing is something that I wish was just naturally taught. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's often times where you know, we get into rooms and people are all competing to be at the center. And so how can you figure out a way to maybe like ride this one out? Like, you don't have to answer every question. You don't have to be at the center of every conversation. Um, If you see someone who may be more quiet, like, how do you invite them into the dialogue should they want to, you know, be in the dialogue? Um, I think that that's that's the perfect way. And then on the Internet, I have have a friend who, like, likes everyone's posts. (laughs) And I'm not saying, like, everyone's posts, but, you know, there's sometimes when you see people and you're like, oh, this selfie, this is confidence. You know, Mm -hmm. even if the person looks drop dead gorgeous, but there is something about that moment of vulnerability that, you know, like throw them a heart, throw them like some sparkle, you know, like throw them like you're great or throw them like I love your mind or, you know, like I think that there's ways to be a part of that cheerleading, even if you're super introverted. Like that's why Instagram can be so fun because you Mm -hmm. can like pretend to be an extrovert. Um, But those comments and those those check ins, I think, are really great. I think that's really important. It's something that you could do that's so small to help someone feel a little bit more confident mm-hmm. in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You are co-authoring a book called Black Futures. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually working on two books, which is ridiculous. She's busy. I know. I'm that girl. I have so much Capricorn in my chart. It's ridiculous. Oh, my God. Is that your sign? I'm a Leo. Oh, okay. I'm a Leo. But Happy like, early birthday. It's coming you. up soon. Leo yeah. season is here. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm working on a one book um, for young people about art talking about art and protest. And then the other book is called Black Futures, which is an anthology looking at black creatives in the age of social media. I'm working on this book with Jenna Wortham. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Jenna and I became friends through a DM exchange. Jenna is a far braver person than I, and she DM'd me first. And we met up for lunch. And during our lunch, um, she pitched this idea of doing a zine about black art together. And because I am a masochist, I said, let's do a book instead. <laughs> um, and the book is largely inspired by Toni Morrison's Black Book, in mm-hmm. which she looked at black culture from about slavery until her respective present day. And because there hasn't been another book that works like that, and because of the incredible expansion that happened through social media, Jen and I have committed to building out this anthology um, to ask ourselves questions about, like, what does it mean to be black and alive right now? Uh, what does it mean that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement started as a Facebook post? What does it mean that, um, you know, there's these ways in which not necessarily a compression, but there's a connective tissue that's happening amongst black creatives where I feel very connected to people in Johannesburg. I feel very connected to London, very connected to all these different parts of the world. Um, And then on top of that, what does it mean that if Instagram, Facebook, Twitter were to close tomorrow, those things could potentially be erased. Um, And that becomes a really urgent dialogue, especially within the context of black culture, of people who have been historically and systematically Mm -hmm. erased. Um, And so our book is an offering to resist that erasure for especially what we're doing right now. What do you think about artists because and like the balance between like visual art and performance art like you see like Solange for instance mm-hmm. like how do you think that's making a difference? Oh, Solange is incredible in terms of making a difference. Um, power cancer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think Solange is incredible as a figure uh, because she really is moving in a way across medium uh, that a lot of artists aren't afforded opportunities to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that artists who are perhaps less visible than her aren't don't have the power to do so, but her taking advantage of her platform, her tapping into her love of art, which is instilled from childhood. Like, I, I got to interview um, Tina, uh, her mother, mm-hmm. for... Vanity Fair and hearing from her about how important art was in teaching her children about what it means to be black, what it means to love yourself, what it means to see yourself mm-hmm. to from a very young age have that moment of seeing yourself reflected in art and then her taking that and embodying that, making new art, bringing people in as audience into her experience because she could just as easily be like a land artist and no one would see the things that she's making. She's bringing it directly into the public sphere, taking over the Guggenheim, taking over the Manil collection, taking over, you know, amazing all these places. Mm-hmm. I think that because she does that and brings us in, it, it really will, I think, have such a tremendous impact on culture moving forward, full stop. You know, social media has changed, obviously, the way we all communicate and I know for people in other um, in other avenues and channels, like for actors, for instance, like there's this pressure to be on social media and for to let everyone into your life. Do you feel like artists feel the same way? And do you think that artists are going to have to start doing performance art and being more active in other avenues of their lives too to let people in? No, I wouldn't say that. Um, I think there is uh, a need for artists to put themselves out in new ways Mm -hmm. in this kind of new visual economy that we found ourselves in as a result of social media. Uh, I think when I talk to artists especially, um, I encourage people to have some sort of landing place online because that's just how so many people are researching these days. Um, And especially if 
you're not in a big city center, it's a really important, I think, tool for access to the spaces that you may want to find yourself in. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily about switching medium. I think it's just about figuring out your level of comfortability um, and how much you want to bring people in and in what ways, because there are some artists that utilize social media and show their entire process from like the first mark to the last mark. Mm -hmm. There are some people who share the things they're reading. Um, there are some artists who just have a website. Um, there's so many ways to get involved, and I don't think that you have to go full gusto if it's not your thing. Um, but I would say I, I would be remiss not to say that having some sort of digital presence uh, is important. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like art has become very transactional, at least for like what people like me who aren't so immersed in the art world. You hear like Da Vinci's going for like 150 million dollars, or Basquiat's like selling for crazy amounts. Like, how do you kind of break that barrier to let people know that like okay no there's so much more going on here and it's not just about those numbers that you see and also bring awareness to smaller artists at the same time yeah i would say it's not not about those numbers yeah it um, is so those are yeah. so important yeah they, they are absolutely important um i would say that it's important that you know to circle back to the conversation we were having a bit earlier about what it means to learn about art in schools where mm -hmm. it is becoming a like a it's a profession right. you know like when you become an artist you're very much running a small business mm -hmm. and we don't talk about it that way um, we don't talk about taxes for artists we don't talk about like the marketplace and like there's just not a really good training for any of those things which is really unfortunate right mm -hmm. um, and then you end up with artists on online who are getting crazy inquiries from people who don't even think that they would have to buy the work Right. Right. And so those numbers are not not important because this, you know, people right. are trying to make a living. This is valuable. Yeah, it's right. valuable. Um, and and, you know, artists want to live sustainable lives just like the rest of us. And so and they the, should. Yeah. So if we get comfortable with understanding that there there can be a value placed on this, that's monetary. That's great. But on the other side, I think understanding the value, the intrinsic value of of a piece of art and maybe in your life or, you know, beyond owning something I think is important as well. Just because this Da Vinci went for X number of dollars doesn't make it better than any other art. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Kimberly, thank you so much for being here. I mean, where can everyone keep up with you? You can keep up with me on Instagram, Twitter, at Museum Mammy, Tumblr, blackcontemporaryart.tumblr.com still exists. Look out for her in New York. Yes. She'll be the former Jersey girl. Yes. With the dress, looking all cute with her <laughs> With my glowing. 973 tattoo. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I love that so much. She has an area code from New Jersey on her ankle. Girl, I'm about to get 732 tattoos yes! real quick. Do it. Thank you so much. You're amazing. That was such a fun and inspiring conversation. I learned a lot and I hope you did too. Thank you for listening. And thanks to our partners at Sephora Collection for helping make this episode possible. Don't forget to find me on Instagram and let me know what your favorite lip story shade is. If you've liked what you heard on today's show, take a moment and subscribe to Lip Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Every rating and every review helps other listeners discover us. And we're always so thankful to hear from you. Also, share the podcast with your friends, with your followers, with your family, with everyone who will listen. I think that they'll love it just as much as you do. All right. I'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.